is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show. Love, death, and especially family and developing healthy relationships from the start. That's why we have a regular segment with a marriage coach and not a divorce lawyer. And today we're talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job as coaching parents and children about, well, all kinds of things that aren't necessarily related to being a medical doctor. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients as Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all that. Dr. Rose, if you don't mind us calling you that, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here, but I, I really enjoy being called Dr. Rose, especially my patients. Fantastic. And one day I'll have to come myself. I'm a parent. I think I'm doing a pretty good job. But you know what? I think we all wonder what we could be doing better. And uh, I think I need some coaching and maybe my kid. I think we could all use a coach. Tell us about Dr. Rose. You know, let's pick up where we last spoke. And we're going to be running a, a long series here so the folks listening can maybe hear whatever problems they're having with their, their children or with parenting uh, sort of characterized in our discussions. So let's talk about some of the kids you've seen recently. And let's not use specific names. I want to respect the privacy of the children. But let's talk about the archetypes and the types of behavior uh, as, as, as a way to lead into this conversation. Let's give us one instance of one child, their problem, and what you did to resolve it. Okay. The first one I thought about when, when um, we started thinking about uh, prototypes was this little boy, and I, I sort of like to um, kindly and uh, with affection label them, but he was, he's the developing genius. And this guy was in first grade when he started coming to me, uh, and he was failing first grade, uh, probably within the first three or four months, and mom had completely lost control of this young man. Mom couldn't figure out why this was happening. The older uh, teenage sister uh, was relatively easy uh, to to guide in school, uh, but this young man, uh, even though he was six, was a complete handful, and they were looking to expel him in school and said that he is un- uh, he was unteachable, uh, and therefore he could not learn and could not learn how to read. And, and Mom uh, went so far as to tape him with her, uh, with her phone uh, to show me what he was doing at home. Uh, he was having absolutely breakdown, terrible temper tantrums whenever he would not get his way. And he would have a sort of form of this in school, but he would know that he had to have limits in school, so he wouldn't go too much over the lines, just so, so, sort of push the limit. And so I would ask mom, so does he seem very smart for specific things? And she said, well, yeah, like, you know, to program the, the cell phone uh, or the computer for, to pick up words that he hadn't seen before, uh, either uh, in vocabulary or by sight. He seemed very sharp, but he wasn't able to control his behavior, so he was behaving 
uh, more and more poorly, which was leading for him to do very poorly in school. Uh, Then uh, I told mom a few things to do, and they were kind of simple. They would restrict the the TV, uh, send him to early bedtimes, uh, make this room very simple so there weren't any distractions. And they're not necessarily punishments, but they're consequences and and things to take away uh, what would get in the way of her voice and his and, and, and his attention. Mom looked at me like I uh, was a criminal, maybe federal criminal. And she said, this is a very unusual way to treat your children. She went back home, and she came back the next time and said, everybody agrees that this is like kid torture. I mean, like not giving them, allowing them him to watch TV. What kind of, what kind of discipline is that? And I said, just bear with me. What will you lose? What, will you not be able to conjure up something magical from the TV. Just bear with me. Be very patient uh, with what I'm I'm, uh, guiding you with because this behavior, and this is important, this behavior did not appear overnight. This behavior will not go away overnight. It will take much persistence from you. So we continue to work on mom and not necessarily on him. And he would sit there very quietly, and I'd always be observing uh, this young genius. And he would always be watching me, listening, sitting quietly. I never saw any of those behaviors mm. in my practice. And I was like, you know, I would think for all the world, unless I know, know you, that you might be fibbing to me, and you're telling me some something about some other child, or that you're trying to... Uh, uh, sort of overstate what's going on in school and at home. But I did see that videotape, and so I trust you. But don't you think it's peculiar that he is able to behave for 30, 45 minutes at a time and just listen to what you and I are saying? This is fascinating, and we're going to go into a break here and continue on the other side, Dr. Rose. And for anybody who's had that kind of kid, and I think we've all known it, And by the way, if any of us know that kind of parent or are that kind of parent who has a real hard time disciplining our kids, uh, we're talking to Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, and she has a lot of experience, as though a medical doctor, with coaching parents how to handle certain types of kids and their behavioral problems. And it's not often a medical problem, and prescription drugs are not the answer to so many of these problems. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the story of raising our kids. Well, it's a story we we tell often here. And more with Dr. Rose after these messages. I want to find out what happened to this boy. And we'll talk about one other archetypal or prototypical child behavior that Dr. Rose coaches a parent on after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Rose. 
And this this gripping account of this child who, and I got to tell you, Dr. Rose, what fascinated me is that you sort of understood or the kid understood that there were certain boundaries. Like he knew he could go much further at home than he could at school. And he knew deep down inside he couldn't get anywhere with you. <laughs> and so the kid knew boundaries. And by the way, I, I've discovered, and by the way, there are some kids, I think we have to admit, that sometimes they're, it's very hard for, any, for them to understand any boundaries. But I think those are the real outliers. My dad was a superintendent of school and became almost a master psychologist over the 40 years he was in education. And he said there are very few of those kids who don't respond to some proper guidance, discipline, and boundary. But there are some. Um, there are some real difficult, difficult cases. Uh, but let's talk about this one and what happened next. Uh, it's almost like a suspense thriller. What, what happened to this kid and to this poor mom? Well, it seemed like for about a year and a half to two years, so this kid is in first grade at that point, uh, for about a year and a half to two years, we sort of bounced along. One, one appointment he was doing well, the next appointment he was doing poorly. And then I said, so what, what is it? What's, what's going on? And uh, I realized that things were going out at home that were making mom very anxious, very stressed out, and losing her authority in her home. She's a single mom, and during one of these times, her dad, uh, who was an alcoholic, came back into their home and started living back in their home. And at the beginning, he was was, uh, doing things very responsibly, but after a little while he started to behave in a way that was disrespectful of that home. And so mom uh, started to be very anxious, very stressed out. And here I have the boy once again acting out at school, but acting worse at home. And, and a lot of this, in, in other words, has to do with the child's reaction to the parental situation. And mom, once she let the alcoholic husband into the house, had lost her grip on the things that were actually working, and that was the reason for the setbacks with the, with the boy. Yes, and the other part was mom's authority and her self-confidence as a mom floundered every time. So she second-guessed herself, would uh, get into a conversation instead of a directiveness with her son, and this uh, developing genius would take advantage of the fact that mom was no longer as sure of herself and not as authoritative. And so there the conflict would start again. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. Mm -hmm. I am the boss. No, I am the boss. And when you start going back and forth with who's the boss, you're not the boss. Yep, that's right. (laughs) And so this happened a couple of times, and I brought it up to mom, and I said, do you realize that every time that you tell me he's doing well, he's doing poorly, that there's something going on in your home. And she looked at me and she said, my life has been like that. I go from, and we said this together, one chaos to another. That's right. When we ourselves go from one chaos to another, our boat will push down into the deep waters, that little dinghy that is behind us, which is our kid. And that was what was happening with a developing genius. He, indeed, was a very smart boy. And we'll get to that part at the end. But every time that mom's life circumstances would, would go down deep and almost sink her, she herself would sink so much that her children would come down with her. So we started to talk about the other children. 
and realized that even though her perception at the beginning was that this developing genius was the only problem in the house, now the other two children were also misbehaved, doing poorly at school. And in fact, she said, well, I need to bring you the other children because, uh, because he, the one I was, I was talking about, is not doing quite as poorly as the other two are. And so I realized, ah, this is a family thing. All three little boats are going down with the bigger boat. And so I, that's when I started really coaching mom. And I said, mom, this is about you. We need to help and restore you and give you the power to be mom through all of this. And Dr. Rose, what, is that, what does that look like? Because now you're, you're, you're a doctor and you've now clearly gained the trust with this lady. And I, I would assume that without the trust, you can't have this conversation. And you've also gotten a confessional out of her in the sense that, you know, not many parents want to say I'm the problem. I mean, it's so easy to blame the kids, blame the school, blame the teacher, blame the alcoholic husband. But getting them to see that they're the problem, that's no duck walk, is it? No, uh, and I, I don't identify them as the problem. I, uh, I will guide the parent to see how strongly attached that child is to you. And I have them understand whenever your child is acting up, before you go and fix the problem, look at you. What's going on? Are you anxious? Are you stressed out? Are you letting the rest of the world affect your voice to the, your child? Mm-hmm. Then step back. Look in the mirror and see a mom, a mom who truly is the parent for this child. And that's what she did at that moment. She took a step back and she said, oh, my goodness, it's me, isn't it? And I said, yeah, this is, these are the things I want you to do. And this is what I told the mom. I said, okay, I needed to go home and look in the mirror and see how do I look like an authoritative mom a little bit more. How do I have to place my shoulders? How do I have to look at my children in the eye? Do some role-playing with yourself before you come out and build yourself into that mom. Maybe you've seen it on TV. Maybe you had a grandmother that way. But build yourself into that look before you come out. And, and at the end of, you know, maybe two weeks, three weeks, whatever it takes, you will actually start to be that mom. And I, I also explained to her, do you think that an actor and an actress that convinces us that they are that person, um, that they're Robin Hood, uh, that they're, they're Mother Teresa, is actually Mother Teresa or is actually Robin Hood? No, they have to practice it also. But this is your most important role. You have to practice that. And she did that and came back the next time and the next time, and every time was a little bit better. Well, here's the the part that almost made me cry, was that at the end of last year, she comes in, and this is the end of third year, and she said, Dr. Rose, they have identified my boy as being intellectually gifted. And I said, I knew it. <laughs> and so they're, they're going to uh, put him in these special classes that will have him possibly skip a grade. He is that smart. I said, that is amazing. So we went from first grade failing, not being unteachable. And we turned not him, but you around. And he is one of the most intelligent boys in that whole third grade class, and probably off the charts on how intelligent he is, because the the all the tests showed that. 
Well, and it's, it's funny, when you first described him in the earlier segment, you called him a genius boy, and you were almost intimating, you were watching the wheels turning in his head as he was quiet in the office, and you thought, oh my goodness, this kid's got tremendous potential. And, and ultimately, Mom saw that not only she was the problem, but she was the solution. And that had to make her just feel great, that she was actually getting the most out of her child because she was actually learning how to properly, properly be a mom. I loved that line. Mom, you're not the problem. You are the solution. Because if you turn it around, otherwise you're just going to be hard on yourself. And you're going to say, see, I am the problem. No, you might be the problem. You might have been the problem yesterday. But from here on out, Mom, you are the solution. You are the medication. You are the therapy your child needs. And when moms understand that, they can turn their problem child at school into a thriving genius. And, you know, I wonder, Dr. Rose, and we don't have much time left, and I'll maybe ask a rhetorical question, but as you help this lady become a better mom, you may actually just have her become a better woman. Um, And maybe she gets to handle that alcoholic husband in a different way, too, Uh, because when she can stall off that chaos to protect her children, indeed what she's doing is protecting herself. That is exactly right. I have seen a woman who, before she was difficult to employ, she now holds a steady job. Uh, her alcoholic uh, husband uh, has been averted a couple of times. <laughs> she uh, seems more sure of herself. She's able to speak better. She, she uh, dresses better. She comes into the office and she commands her sort of gentle, womanly respect. And uh, I'm so happy to see her every time. We just, we, we just get a warm uh, feeling from just looking at each other and saying hello. Well, we love these stories. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, a doctor who actually coaches parents how to be better parents. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and this next story is centered around a question. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? Che was killed on October 9 in 1967 in Bolivia while leading a guerrilla movement that had failed to enlist a single peasant. The present-day cult of Che in America, the t-shirts, the paraphernalia, the posters, has succeeded in obscuring his dreadful reality. We kick off our story on Che with a performance from the television talent show Star Academy. As a giant flag of Che waves in the background, the singers and background dancers wear the Che Communist Beret and sing an ode to their hero they call Until Forever Commander. The chorus sounds like something that would be sung to a North Korean dictator. Here lies the clear, the dear transparency of your beloved presence, Commander Che Guevara. Hey, 
Before there was Oprah, Madonna, or Bono, there was Che. Type Che Guevara into eBay and you get a staggering 33,000 results. From flags, to iPhone cases, cigarette lighters, and perhaps most brilliantly of all, wallets. Of course, there is also the t-shirt. Thousands of them. Go to any protest, rock concert, or college campus, and you're bound to see the image of the socialist heartthrob in a beret, silk-screened on the front of a t-shirt. Che's image is one of popular culture's greatest ironies, that a photograph of someone who gave up his life for communism is now a quintessential capitalist brand. And irony upon irony, the man whose propaganda machine set the Che myth in motion is none other than the former Cuban president, Fidel Castro. How did Che Guevara, the communist terrorist revolutionary who murdered hungry children and became an icon around the world for his role in the 1959 communist takeover of Cuba, end up becoming the most commercial image in the world? Let's find out from Humberto Fantova. Humberto was seven years old when his family fled the Fidel and Che-led takeover of Cuba in 1961. He now lives in the United States and holds a master's degree in Latin American studies and has written books on both Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. I asked him to uncover how the Che legend and especially the origins of the Che t-shirt began. Well, the astounding thing about Che Guevara is how a complete and utter failure in everything he attempted in life could have become so famous. Castro himself said, propaganda is the heart of our struggle. Che Guevara himself in his diaries said, much more important than guerrilla recruits were American media recruits to export our propaganda. There it is. But the Che Guevara phenomenon started after he was dead. That's when that picture was cropped and dusted off. As his former comrades would have told you, Fidel Castro only praised the dead. Fidel's historical revisionism of Che and his use of Che's image have been swallowed by useful idiots, the name Stalin gave to foolish Westerners who parroted his lies about communism's success. Che was the architect of Cuba's forced labor camps, which by 1965 were transformed into concentration camps for dissidents, homosexuals, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Cubans of other religious sects. Anyone who refused to think, speak, and act in accordance with the Communist Party line was an affront to Che. This explains why the United States was his primary object of hate. In fact, he hoped to start a third world war. Here again is Humberto Fantova. Yeah, it was shortly after the missile crisis that uh, he thought he was talking off the record to the London Daily Worker. And he said, if the missiles had remained in Cuba, we would have fired them against the heart of the United States, including New York City. This was in November of 1962. And here's what happened November of that year again. 
J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uncovered a plot in Manhattan. Here were the targets. Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Gimbel's, and Grand Central Terminal. 500 kilos of TNT were to be set off in them. The date was going to be the day after Thanksgiving of 1962. The day of the Macy's Day Parade. Macy's by itself gets 50,000 shoppers on that one day, or did so back in 1962. Jagger Hoover's FBI had infiltrated the plot. They rounded up the plotters. And so here was Che Guevara planning to blow up Manhattan. If Che's terrorist plot on New York City would have not been stopped, it would have made 9-11 the second worst terrorist attack on the United States. Che's image has been sold on products by companies including Taco Bell, Gap, Urban Outfitters, Vans, and Louis Vuitton. But the most widespread of all is the humble t-shirt, worn by the likes of Prince Harry, Madonna, Carlos Santana, the band Rage Against the Machine, Johnny Depp, and Jay-Z who raps, I'm like Che Guevara with bling on. I'm like Che Guevara with bling on, I'm complex. The TV show South Park and The Simpsons have both lampooned Che t-shirt wearers. Here's the South Park episode where 10-year-old Kyle starts wearing a Che t-shirt and attends a music festival after trying to sell magazines to a group of Che-loving hippies. Oh, wow. You guys shouldn't be doing that. Don't you know what you're doing to the world? Well, what do you mean? You're playing into the corporate game. See, the corporations are trying to turn you into little Eichmanns so that they can make money. Who are the corporations? The corporations run the entire world, and now they've fooled you into working for them. Are you serious? We never heard that. We just spent our first semester at college. Our professors opened our eyes. The government is using its corporate ties to make you sell magazines so they can get rich. Well, well what do we do? Just hang with us for a bit. We'll fill you in on everything you haven't been told. Wow, this band is so crunchy. Dude, I need more weed. So it seems like we have enough people now. When do we start taking down the corporations? Yeah, man, the corporations. Right now, they're raping the world for money. Yeah, so where are they? Let's go get them. Right now, we're proving we don't need corporations. We don't need money. This can become a commune where everyone just helps each other. Yeah, we'll have one guy who, like, who like makes bread. And one guy who, like, looks out for other people's safety. You mean like a baker and a cop? No, no, can't you imagine a place where people live together and, like, provide services for each other in exchange for their services? Yeah, it's called a town. You kids just haven't been to college yet. But just you wait. This thing is about to get huge. Hollywood has advanced the chain myth with movies like Robert Redford's Motorcycle Diaries and Academy Award-winning director Steven Soderbergh's two-part biopic starring the incredibly gifted actor Benicio Del Toro as Che. Here's a clip. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity, of justice and truth. The irony is that Che jailed or exiled most of Cuba's best writers, poets, musicians, and filmmakers. He detested long hair, lazy youths, rebellion, freedom, and independence. 
he declared that individualism must disappear. And when we come back, more on Che Guevara. This is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we return to the question, how did the Che Guevara t-shirt become such an American and worldwide phenomenon? Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story. Here again is Humberto Fantova. So you had forced labor camps, and those were the ones that the youth, the long-haired youth, went to. That's another one of the fantastic ironies of this is is that the co-founder of the only regime in modern history to have actually outlawed rock music and actually persecuted punished and tortured rock music listeners is Che Guevara because here's what happened think about it kids were trying to listen to the Beatles Beatles and Rolling Stones music and so forth was outlawed in Cuba so you'd have places like public parks and so forth where young kids would get together and who were trying to grow their hair long and, you know, they'd have uh, trying to listen to the music on their transistors uh, from the U.S. trying to get you at stations to listen to the Beatles and the Stones and so forth. Well, military trucks would just show up and surround the area and simply round everybody there. Imagine a... Uh, a Woodstock three or Lollapalooza surrounded by uh, National Guard trucks who round up everybody there with billy clubs and whips and send them to a forced labor camp. And then imagine the groups who played at Lollapalooza or Woodstock wearing T-shirts and hailing the people who ordered the roundup. <laughs> That's essentially what you have in the case of Cuba and Che Guevara. When Paquito de Riviera met Che, he recalls how hostile Che was towards his dream of becoming a musician. It was the moment he knew he had to leave Cuba. Here's de Riviera. Che was an inspiration for me because ever since I thought I had to get out of this island as soon as I can, because I am in the wrong place at the wrong time. D. Riviera did escape Cuba. He's won 12 Grammy Awards since his arrival to America, playing the music Che tried to silence. Here's jazz legend Dizzy Gillespie introducing Paquito D. Riviera. And now we'd like to introduce a young man who has become a grandmaster in this Native American art form. Only he is from the island of Cuba. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure now to introduce Mr. Paquito de Rivera. Che's symbol of rebellion actually enforced conformity at the point of a gun, literally. 
Here's how Humberto Fantova feels about guitarist Carlos Santana, whose musical signatures is one of the world's best known. Ladies and gents, turn up this sound system to the sound of Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana thought he was the coolest, sharpest guy in the world while pridefully showing off the emblem of a regime that made it a criminal offense to listen to Carlos Santana music. See, you can make a movie out of Che, and I wish somebody would, but it would have to be something along the lines of a Marx Brothers movie, or a Peter Sellers movie, or a Monty Python movie. You can have a lot of fun because of the absolute idiocies that people who admire him pull off. D. Riviera also wrote an open letter to Santana after his Oscar performance in which the musician wore a chase shirt under a huge cross necklace. Here's D. Riviera. That is like entering a synagogue with a swastika on your, on your, on your chest. That doesn't make any sense. He hates artists. So how's possible that artists still today support uh, the image of Che Guevara. Just the sight of a Nazi swastika fills us with dread, and for good reason. Adolf Hitler is one of the world's most notorious mass murderers. That's why the US and British tabloids unloaded on Prince Harry when he wore a Nazi uniform to a costume party. But when the prince hit the town in a chase shirt, The press yawned. We're rightly horrified by fascist murderers. Why aren't we also horrified by communist killers? Calculating communist torture and death tolls can be a daunting challenge, but one taken on by Harvard University Press's Black Book of Communism. The book's authors, themselves former communists, estimate that Che-established labor camps executed what would be equivalent of over three million executions in the United States. Here's Humberto Vantova. We're talking about a regime that jailed and tortured at a higher rate than Stalin and that murdered more political prisoners in its first three years in power than Hitler's regime murdered in its first six years of power. And that's an absolute number. Cuba is only a nation of 6.4 million people in 1960. 59 when Che Castro and we don't know though according to the black book of communism 16,000 ended up getting murdered uh, during the course mostly during the early 60s the total body count for the Cuban revolution and for this we have to include those who died trying to escape Cuba came to about a hundred thousand according to an outfit known as the Cuba archive which has done a just a superb job trying to catalog all of the deaths associated with the Cuban Revolution. The firing squads, the forced labor camps, beatings to death in prisons, and people who have died trying to escape. And it's important to include those who died trying to escape because, folks, about two to three hundred Germans died overall trying to escape East Germany. The estimates of the number of Cubans that have died trying to escape the regime co-founded by Che Guevara and Fidel Castro runs from about 25,000 to 45,000 have died. And horribly, they were machine gunned while trying to escape. 
They were ripped apart by sharks. They died of starvation, of dehydration, horrible deaths trying to escape Cuba. And what makes this most significant is that prior to the Castro Che Revolution, Cuba took in more immigrants in the early part of the 20th century than did the United States. And this was including the Ellis Island years, and most of these immigrants came from Europe. In other words, people used to be as desperate to enter Cuba pre-Castro and Che as they became desperate to escape Cuba post-Castro and Che. If you think the Hitler-Stalin-Che death comparison is hard to believe, try imagining this. Che would sign off his letters as Stalin II. In 2012, the multinational clothing corporation Urban Outfitters stopped carrying their Che-fronted merchandise after an open letter on behalf of the Human Rights Foundation called their attention to his bloody and anti-democratic legacy, namely that he represents tyranny and repression for the millions of people who have suffered under communism. Target recently pulled their 24-CD carrying case decorated with the image of Che Guevara after intense customer backlash. One customer remarked, What's next? Pol Pot pajamas? Currently, Walmart stands alone with several pages of Che Guevara merchandise for sale on its website. One of the posters for sale features this propaganda quote by the sadistic torturer. Let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous, that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. Investors Business Daily lamented in an editorial that all this reflects an indifference to history. It is customary for followers of a cult not to know the real-life story of their hero, the historical truth. Young Argentines have come up with an expression for this cultural phenomenon that rhymes perfectly in Spanish. I have a Che t-shirt, and I don't know why. Che's cult status among disaffected youth and others unhappy with the state of the world has endured, with Che's well-documented reputation for brutality overlooked. In the end, ignorance, of course, accounts for much of the Che myth. But myth can tell you as much about an era as truth. And so it is that thanks to Che's own testimonials, his thoughts, and his deeds, and thanks also to his premature departure, we know exactly how deluded so many of our contemporaries are about so much. The only question is whether Che fans are too ignorant to realize they've been duped or too anti-American to care. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And there you have it. Great job as always, Greg. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? A story wrapped around a question, Che Guevara's story, which affects so many people who have kids at college campuses and see that image. Well, now you have a story to tell those young people, a story to share. Che Guevara's story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're going to talk today about the minimum wage. There's a lot of discussion. Is it good for the economy, bad for the economy? Will it lift workers' salaries up? What's the net impact of all this? And particularly for us, what's the impact on the creation of jobs? Because in the end, uh, we've, we are net in favor of more job creation here on this show. Uh, we're not a political organization here. As you can tell, we don't do politics. But periodically, we do do economics. And we love to tell the story of business owners uh, because their stories are rarely told. And my goodness, the people who run businesses, they're the lifeblood of this economy. They're the ones who create the jobs. They're the ones who create everything. Without them, this is not a country. And so we came across an article in National Review about minimum wage. And joining us is Jamie Richardson, a vice president at White Castle. And for those of you not lucky enough to have a White Castle in your state, I grew up in New Jersey and I couldn't live without them. And they're in your freezer aisle at most supermarkets in this country in all 50 states. And Jamie, thanks for joining us. And joining us also is Jahangir Kabir, a district supervisor at White Castle. Guys, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you. And hey, Lee, with that shout-out, you might be on the path of the Cravers Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's some enthusiasm uh, from a New Jersey day. So thank you. We appreciate it. Oh, there's nothing there's nothing like a White Castle, and especially when you're just – I like them at around – my favorite time for a White Castle, around 8 or 9 p.m. And I can, <laughs> I can down – in my prime, I could down 12 of them, um, which I'm very proud of. And folks, if you haven't had them, they're, they're small burgers – but they're delightful burgers. This is sounding like an advertisement, Jamie, so let's go on to the <laughs> <Yeah>. issue. <laughs> so I wanted to we start... It. Oh, you bet. I want to start, Jahangir, with you first. Uh, you know, a lot of folks that I know don't like calling these minimum wage jobs. They like calling them entry-level jobs. I want to talk about the importance of the entry-level job you had at White Castle in your life. Tell us, Jahangir, your story. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much to give me the opportunity to come up and uh, talk about my story. I, I greatly, greatly appreciate this, uh, Lee Habib. Uh, you know, I came in this country in 1990 from uh, Bangladesh. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Bangladesh is a very poor country, and I came in this country, first of all, I was in culture shock. I had no clue what was going on here. Uh, and second of all, the problem was I didn't speak any English. So, you know, I started looking at a job, nobody would hire me, you know, so it was a very, very bad situation in my life. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden I walked into a White Castle restaurant in Elmer's, Queens, New York. And I had this conversation with this gentleman named Eugene Miller, and I, talk, you know, I, I sort of communicated my, uh, uh, my situation with him with broken language, one word here, one word there, and luckily my sister-in-law was here with me. And she was able to help me express myself what my situation is. And Mr. Miller was very kind. He actually offered me a job on the spot. He said, hey, listen, you can come and join our team. You really don't need English to cook hamburgers. That's what my sister, sister-in-law told me in my own language. Uh, you are more than welcome to join. And I was able to join that location. If White Castle was not there, I probably wouldn't be here today. And Jahangir... And Jahangir, yeah. so you started at that at job cooking hamburgers, and that was 1990. Where are you today? What has White Castle meant to you and that entry-level job meant to you? Well, let me tell you what happened. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a desire to learn and learn English. So once I learned really English good, uh, I was able to move up within the company. 
I became an instructor, I became a crew manager, I became a general manager. Right now, I'm a district manager running eight locations in New York City. About $14 million in business. I hope Jamie's okay. I'm giving out some numbers. <laughs> that's, only, that's the only number I'm giving out just about. I have about 250 employees works for me. You know, not only that, I think the most important part is that I had an opportunity work at White Castle. I, at the same time, attend school. So I'm very happy to report to your audience that I was able to finish my Doctor of Business Administration degree this February. So, so, so that's what White Castle means to an individual like me. That's what White Castle or restaurant industry means to someone like me. And that's my story. That's my experience. And thank you so much for making the opportunity available to speak about it. Well, Jahangir, these stories are really important. And for the life of me, I've always wondered why American business doesn't just get a channel and just pipe these stories out because they're true to the rest of the American people. And then we can have an honest gut discussion about minimum wage and all the implications of raising it to, to $15. Uh, Jamie, tell us what Jahangir's story means for you as it relates to the minimum wage, because this is personal, isn't it? It's really personal, and we're so proud of Jahangir, and we're so proud to call him our, our colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Jahangir Kabir. Uh, you know, as a family-owned business that's been around for 95 years, we've been in the city of New York since 1930, and all along the way, one of the things we've been able to do is provide more opportunity for more people. And Jahangir's story to us is why we exist. It's not just about selling hot and tasty food that's fun and that's good and that's important. It's about the opportunity we provide to great people who get to have their dreams come true because they've joined us. And to us, that's why we exist. And so when we hear things uh, about uh, government officials thinking this is a good idea, on paper it might feel that way. The reality is when you foist that upon business and you try to come in with an edict that says it has to be at this level by this day, you prevent that business from being able to hire more people. So it's actually the antithesis of why we exist. It, It works against that. Well, hold on that with that thought. We're going to come back on the other side and dig into the actual policy implications. We're talking to Jamie Richardson, Vice President of White Castle and a member of the Job Creators Network, and Jahangir Kabir, a District Supervisor at White Castle. And this is an important discussion, folks, and you're going to get another side of this story that you might not get in other places. And again, we don't do politics here on Our American Stories. But my goodness, that immigrant story you just heard from Jahangir, there's millions of stories like that, folks, in this great country. More with Our American Stories after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The minimum wage, that's what we're talking about. But we're talking about it where the rubber hits the road. We're talking about it with a, a company called White Castle. If you live in the Northeast, you know what we're talking about. If you don't, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but you can go to the supermarket and grab some White Castle burgers in the aisle. And later we'll give you some cooking instructions so you can know just what we're actually experiencing in places like New York and New Jersey. Alex? Don't forget about the Midwest, Lee. We had it here in Chicago. My grandma actually used to sneak White Castle burgers when we would go in the movie theater. <laughs> You're not allowed to bring in outside food, but we'd always bring in that White Castle. Well, that's uh, we'll get more into the details about the joys of White Castle. But we're here to talk about the minimum wage and for restaurants, for so many businesses in this country. And by the way, franchise businesses, too. And there are 20% of all American businesses are franchises. Um, this minimum wage issue is personal. So, Jamie, get into the nuts and bolts here for our audience. Well, you know, when I hear young people, particularly, I, we broadcast here from Oxford, Mississippi. There are lovely kids here, and they're all walking around talking about $15 and a fair wage. You know what I always say to them? Why not $50 as a minimum wage? Let's make it $50 an hour. And they, don't, they, they think I'm kidding, but I, I ask a serious question when I ask that. Talk about that $15 and what it means to you and how it could actually harm job creation, something you Im- intimated earlier. Great questions. And first, let me share what we're for. We're absolutely in favor of providing more employment to more people at great wages. And we provide great benefits as a family-owned business. That's been part of our business model right from the very beginning, because we understand it's the dignity of each person. And our founder's philosophy was uh, happy employees make happy customers. So that's the heart and soul of who we are at White Castle. I mean, we provide a great wage, but in addition to that, we have a retirement benefit, a health care benefit. What a mandated uh, starting pay rate of $15 means for us in the state of New York, where it's just been actually passed, is catastrophic. The reason it's catastrophic is it takes the the wage rate and drives it up so high so fast, there's no way for us to be able to continue to make money that we can reinvest in the business, reinvest in our people, to be able to achieve the things we want to in each of our neighborhoods. So let me give you the the breakdown on the numbers. So when you take that wage rate, that starting wage rate up 50%, that represents about 30% of our total cost in a restaurant, what we invest in our hourly wages. So it's almost a third of our total cost is in that wage rate. So when you crank it up 50% or more, somehow, some way, we have to find a way to try to get that back. One thing is to look at trying to raise prices. But we also know people have choices. They don't have to go to White Castle. They can make leftovers last longer at home. So that's one thing that's reality. The other factor is, candidly, uh, you try to manage your hours then to be there to provide the hospitality that we're known for in the restaurant industry. But with that kind of uh, fiat uh, uh, wage rate, it's really difficult to manage and still be able to make a dollar. Average White Castle makes about 1.5% profit uh, on sales for for every dollar in sales, we're getting to keep about a penny and a half. So when you crank up these rates that high, that doesn't turn into be a small profit. It turns out to be a big loss. So that's why it's concerning to us. Indeed. indeed. And one of the questions I always had is if you jack up that minimum wage to $15 and you were paying some people $12 an hour and 14 and moving them up that wage ladder, what do you do then? What do you do when now the minimum is 15? What do you say to the people you'd already given raises to that are at 12 or 13? What happens yeah. to everything, Jamie? 
Lee, that's a great question, and that's the reality that doesn't get discussed a lot in the bumper sticker debate that tends to unfold around these issues. So in reality, let's say you have someone who's a star. They've been with us six years. They love what they're doing at White Castle. Maybe they're at 14 bucks an hour. Are you really going to be able to say that individual that now we're bringing in new people who've never worked a day here, and they're going to start at 15, and you're going to be at 15 also? No, you're going to want to keep that uh, you know, proportional. So that's why when we see these things come through, it's across the board in terms of its impact. It's not not just for that starting pay position. You don't take someone who's a star and, and you know, say, oh, we're going to take you back down to the, the entry level. You want to reward them and treat them with the dignity they deserve for the great job they're doing. So that's part of the, the difficulty and the challenge. And I think in, in years past, maybe there's been a debate about minimum wage, but candidly, whatever has happened legislatively has been pretty close to where the market is already. This is really jumping the shark in terms of uh, uh, cranking it up beyond any kind of connection to economics. The thing that bothers us the most isn't that we make less money. The thing that bothers us the most is it's harder for us to hire people, especially younger people who are looking for that first job. We're going to have a whole lost generation of kids who never have the opportunity to, to uh, get that first job and learn skills they can take with them the rest of their life. You bet. And we do a great segment called First Jobs Fridays where we talk to everybody, you name it, from famous people, we hear from Ashton Kutcher, to ordinary folks about the importance of that first job, what folks learned. And for many people, that first job, that entry-level job, ends up being a profession. You know, Jamie, 450 of your top employees, of the 450 of the top employees at White Castle, again, a privately family-owned business, 444 started out behind the counter in an hourly job. That's astounding, Jamie. Yeah, it's amazing, and I think being able to be part of a family-owned business just really illustrates that there's room to grow, and there's places to go, and, you know, that's true of restaurants everywhere, and we're especially proud of our White Castle team members who decided, we're fortunate, they've decided to make this their calling, and, uh, you know, we love those six who didn't start behind the counter at White Castle. They're great folks, too, so, yep. but, you know, we really got a great track record and tremendous loyalty, and we think that's because we're treating people right, hopefully, and doing the right thing for the long haul. You know, even the government admits, and this is the CBO, and we're never going to use terms like CBO much here on this show, folks, so don't have your eyes roll over. But it's just the Congressional Budget Office. And when they were putting together the projections for minimum wage, they said that this would cost at least a half a million jobs. So you always have to ask yourself the question, Jamie, no job versus a, a slightly lower minimum wage than everybody would necessarily aspire to. Talk about kiosks, because I keep seeing them popping up in the very strangest of places. Restaurants, Jamie, and I'm seeing them at supermarkets, too. Self-checkout, self-service. Talk about that. Well, certainly one of the pressures that, that is there is um, a pressure to quicken the pace of technology and access to technology. You know, keep in mind, we're in the hospitality business when it comes to restaurants. It's also true for retailers. So when you heighten that pressure, you're going to see people make those moves quicker. Um, you know, we're pro-technology at White Castle because we know that that's good for our customers. What we don't want to do is be forced to be in a position where we're not able to staff a restaurant, have those jobs, have those employees there on the front lines who are able to greet a customer, who are able to work uh, the, the different uh, challenges of working the drive through So for us, we're in a people business, and it's always been forward-facing. It's always been about problem-solving, listening, and being responsive. And so, you know, what I think we're going to see 
generally speaking, is a move towards more technology. We don't see that as a bad thing, and we don't threaten that as like, oh, we're going to replace jobs with technology. But the fact of the matter is, when you disrupt the marketplace like these um, by fiat uh, mandatory starting pay measures happen, it really does disrupt the normal course of development, and it makes it tougher for people. Do you know that youth unemployment rate in the state of New York is 21%. That's catastrophic, and it's going to get worse because, candidly, with a forced higher starting pay, those kids aren't getting, those young people aren't going to get the chance for that first job, and that's a shame. It is, and Jahangir, you've got thirty seconds. Just you know, again, you're talking to policymakers and legislators. Tell them what you think of this, and just let's hear from you as we close things out. Well, uh, thank you so much for that. I think uh, that uh, it, it, it's good to have a healthy conversation about the issue. But what I ought to uh, request the policymaker is that uh, the restaurant industry has to have a seat on the table. And every, every voice has to be hard on that issue before they make a decision. Guys, I so appreciate it. Jamie Richardson, Vice President of White Castle and a member of Job Creators Network, and Jahangir Kabir, a district supervisor at White Castle, we're done with the serious stuff. And now to that, that burger, Jamie. How do we take that White Castle burger for people who've never experienced the restaurant and are going into the supermarket? What's the, what's the trick? What's the tip? One minute, Jamie. Well, you got tough decisions, cheeseburger or hamburger. Once you've made that choice, I get, get that six-pack or 16-pack home. And what I would recommend is put a two-pack in the refrigerator, uh, let it thaw a little bit, and then when you pop it in the microwave, open just one end of the package, hit 30 seconds on your microwave, and when it is done, it will be the closest to drive through bliss you can encounter. If you're a purist, you might want to add a pickle. We don't put a pickle on the ones uh, that we put in the microwave because we don't want it to overheat. But uh, you're going to have a, an incredible experience that uh, is as close to the drive through as you could ever imagine, and uh, you'll be craving on in a free world, my friend. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for that. You, that is the answer. That is the answer. I've toyed. I've messed. By the way, I can't replace the pickle. You guys have that thin, sliced, perfect pickle, and there's no such thing in the, in the private sector that replaces it. But, folks, you just heard it. Great public policy discussion, and even more important, an important food discussion. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories where we bring you stories about everything in life and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website lifeset.com. I happen to write for them too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. 
The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat. Both an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him from his cancer or pneumonia or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A, an airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me, 
the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU, Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there isn't a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I am a danger to my patient. There is now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable, at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. 
There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner. And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now and then, we love to throw to Jesse's favorite segment, and he brings us, well, he brings this to us when he feels like it. Let's take a listen. (laughs) Shower thoughts. People shouldn't be allowed to use the bathroom on an airplane for flights lasting under two hours. If you can't hold it for that long, too bad. I'm sorry your mommy didn't teach you any self-control. I'd like to think that money wouldn't change who I am, but when I'm winning Monopoly, I become a terrible person. If organized crime started printing high-quality counterfeit college textbooks and then sold them at cut-rate prices, it'd be a really good public relations move. If pigs could fly, I bet their wings would taste delicious. When boarding an airplane, first-class passengers are forced to sit at eye level with the coach passengers' crotches as they board. Airlines could solve this problem by letting first-class board last. Sometimes pets are better than children. They eat less, they don't ask for money, and if they get pregnant, you can just sell their babies. Dog food could say it's any flavor it wants to. You're not going to test it. When I was a small kid, my grandma used to show me love by playing along with my make-believe games. Now that she's older and has dementia, it's my turn to show love by playing along with hers. If you accuse someone of being argumentative, they can't disagree with you without proving your point. Why would anybody buy a bookmark for a dollar when they could use a dollar for a bookmark? According to most ghost photos, our clothes must have a soul too, otherwise all ghosts would be photographed naked. The kind of people who close the shade on an airplane window should be placed on the terrorist watch list and not be allowed to fly. These people are the last kind of soul-sucking vampires I would want to die with if, God forbid, the plane went down in flames over the sun-scorched desert. Shouldn't billboards be illegal since they distract you from the road? If you wash the dirt from a fallen ice cube, you're washing your water with water and hope that there's only water on the water that you will add to your water. Shower thoughts. (laughs) Well, thanks for that, Jesse, as always. 
And next, we're bringing you Melissa Fenton, who runs the website www.fourboysmother.com. As you might guess, Melissa is a wife and a mother of four boys and writes humorous and heartfelt essays about modern parenting and nostalgia. We've all heard about that tragic accident at Disney World where two parents enjoying a vacation with their kids suddenly and violently had their world torn upside down when an alligator took their two-year-old boy in front of their very eyes. The father suffered numerous wounds as he fought a losing battle for his young, helpless son in the alligator's clutches. The mother even ran to help and also suffered wounds. Tragically, in the end, the young boy was not saved. And the day after the accident, Melissa Fenton penned a fantastic essay, Open Letter to Perfect Parents, Put Down Your Pitchforks, that went absolutely viral. And, well, she recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Melissa's poignant rant that rivals some of Hengler's very best rants. Parents, I beg of you, stop blaming and shaming other parents. 35 years ago, a mom shopping in a Sears department store went to go look at lamps and left her six-year-old with another group of boys who were all trying out the new Atari game at a kiosk. That boy's name was Adam Walsh. 30 years ago, an 18-month-old toddler playing in her aunt's backyard fell into a well. Rescuers worked nonstop for 58 hours, finally freeing baby Jessica from the well. In both cases, a tragedy happened. An unforeseen tragic accident took place which left Adam dead and a toddler fighting for her life deep underground. But they also had something else in common. They had an entire country of moms and dads supporting the grieving parents. Let me repeat that. Everyone supported the rescue efforts without blame. No blame. None. Zero. No questions asked. Not one single, where were their parents, comment. Just a country of other moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, watching in horror as a set of parents, one of their own, went through the unthinkable. Adam was everybody's son, and Jessica was everybody's daughter. Those parents were us. Flash forward to 2016, the year of the perfect parent. Yesterday, a two-year-old boy splashing in the magical lakefront waters of a Disney resort succumbed to the wilds of Mother Nature. An aggressive alligator scooped him out of the water right under the watch of his father, who attempted to fight with the alligator to free his baby son. Pure horror. Sheer terror. Parents who actually had to watch their baby be taken from them as if they were in some African nature documentary. A tragic and unforeseeable accident. An accident. I weep for this mother and father. I am sick with anguish for the pain, agony, misery, and regret, regret pulsing through their veins this very second. And I bet you are too. But not everyone is. You see, we now live in a time where accidents are not allowed to happen. You heard me. Accidents, of any form, in any way, and at any time, well, they just don't happen anymore. Why? Because blame and shame. Because we have become a nation of blamers and shamers. And how are accidents allowed to happen if we can't blame someone? Surely they can't, right? I mean, random acts of nature, 
unpreventable tragedies and fateful life-changing events that take place in a matter of nanoseconds cannot possibly take place if everyone is being a responsible parent, right? Nope. They can't because this country and its population of perfect pitchfork-carrying mothers and fathers sitting behind keyboards needs to accuse. They need to blame, to disparage, to criticize in every damn way and at every damn corner the parenting of another. And when do they really get to lick their blaming chops? When a tragic accident happens. That's when the pouncing is at its freshest. When raw emotion and ignorance collide and they dig their word claws in and take hold of whatever grace these grieving mothers and fathers have left in their souls. And they tear it out. Listen to me very carefully, perfect parents. Very carefully. I've had enough. I've had enough of scrolling through comment threads and seeing over and over again questions like, where were the parents? And thoughts like, this is what happens when you don't watch your kids. I've simply had enough. I have one question for the blaming and shaming moms and dads. You know, the ones who immediately blame the parents. The ones who go on the internet and type comments like, this is nothing but neglect by the parents. And they should have known better. Who was watching that little boy? And my personal favorite, I would never let that happen to my kid. Here's my question. Have you ever been to a child's funeral before? Because I have. The funeral of a child is an event in life that you never, ever want to experience. Now let me ask you another question. In the coming week, these parents will fly back to their home in Nebraska without one of their children. They will leave a vacation resort packing up his Buzz Lightyear pajamas and his favorite blanket, and they will make an excruciatingly difficult journey home. A journey that they never in a million years thought they would be making. They will meet with the funeral director, pick out a tiny casket, a tiny burial suit, and surrounded by family, they will bury their baby boy, and they will suffer every single day for the rest of their life. At the funeral for this two-year-old boy who died in front of his parents, can you do me a favor? Can you walk up to that mother and say the words that you just typed out last week? Can you? Can you greet her, hug her, shake the father's hand, and then say, Who was watching that little boy? You should have known better. I would never let that happen to my child. Can you do that for me? I mean, you felt those words so deeply in your heart and soul that you typed them for a million people to read. Certainly, you can say it straight to the faces of the people you meant it for, right? Here, let me help you. Put away your pitchfork for a moment and try this. To the mother and father who went for a walk and vacation for the last time with their little boy yesterday, I am deeply sorry that you had to experience the worst kind of tragedy possible, an accident. I grieve with you. Your baby was my baby. Your son was my son. I have nothing but love for you. Love to help you get through the pain yesterday, today, and for what is going to seem like a thousand tomorrows. I wrap my thoughts and prayers around your aching heart and soul. May the God of this universe, in some miraculous way, bring peace to you and your family. That is what you say. That. And just that. Stop blaming. 
stop shaming. In their darkest hours, can we please just love other parents? Please? And that was Melissa Fenton, author of An Open Letter to Perfect Parents. Put down your pitchforks. Couldn't agree more. That's why we ran it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more of our content, more of our storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org.